If you have your Bibles, uh, please take that out um, and turn with me, if you will, to Paul's letter to Galatians, the churches of Galatia. If you're using a pew Bible, um, that is found on page 972. We're starting a new series tonight through this letter. And, uh, you know, I was thinking on the way up here, strangely enough, five years or so now we've been having the evening service and very little of our texts have been from Paul. Um, part of that is because we only meet, you know, on the second and fourth Sundays and Paul's difficult enough when you meet every week, especially uh, like Romans, for example. Um, but uh, I just couldn't resist any longer. <laughs> so we've got to jump in. We've looked at First Thessalonians, but tonight we're going to begin looking at one of um, what's called the capital epistles of Paul. There's four of those, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and then this one, Galatians. A very, very important letter in the New Testament. So tonight we're going to begin by looking at Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. And um, let me read that for us and encourage you to listen and give God's word your attention tonight. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We need God's help to understand this. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us illumine our minds to rightly understand this portion of your word and fill our hearts with fervor and passion that mimics the passion and fervor of the Apostle Paul for the truth of the gospel, for the solid message the good news that Jesus Christ has come into this world and died in the place of sinners to deliver us from our own sins in the from the present evil age. Oh, Father, help that truth as we begin looking at this letter tonight. Free us to live not any longer for ourselves and for our former idolatrous ways, but for you and for you alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, have you ever been astonished? I love how Paul starts off, I am astonished in verse 6. So what is a time in your life when you felt astonished, just sort of stunned, almost unable to speak? Well, you're probably thinking, I bet, Luke, you're about to tell me a time when you're astonished. And if you're thinking that, you're right on the track so far in this sermon. Let me tell you about uh, what just kept popping into my mind this week as I was thinking about my, a time when I was astonished. When I was a sophomore in high school, I played on the JV basketball team at my high school, and probably as I still do, I then greatly overestimated my athletic abilities, and um, one of my dreams was to, to get promoted to the varsity team as a sophomore. 
the varsity basketball team. And so we had had a game the Friday night um, before this Monday when I went back to school. And to be honest with you, please don't see this as boasting. I boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ, but I really played well. <laughs> um, it was one of the highlights of my sporting career, which says something because I was like 15 years old and it was all downhill from there. But I played really well, uh, scored well, didn't turn the ball over any. And I, you know, I was pretty, pretty proud of myself, thought I had done really well. And so I came in to practice on Monday after that game after school was over, and I'm walking down the hall, getting ready to go in the locker room and change, and I see the head coach of the varsity team there waiting for me. And he says, Evans, come over here. I need to tell you something. And I was thinking, oh, man, here we go. I'm about to get promoted, baby. I'm going up to varsity. I'll be the only sophomore on the varsity team. Things are looking up. And uh, that's not what happened, strangely enough. Um, what happened instead was, well, I got to fill you in on something else that happened in the game. Um, in the game, it was a close game. I played well. We ended up winning, but I was pretty competitive then. Um, God hopefully has sanctified me some at this point, but um, at one point in that game, um, the clock was supposed to have been stopped towards the very end of the game at a, a very crucial time in the game when it's tied, and the clock keeper had somehow not really been paying attention. She was kind of looking at her fingernails, and she let the clock run when we had the ball, like an extra four seconds. And so I yelled at her, sort of in the heat of the moment, stop the clock, what are you doing? And she kind of gave me one of those looks that was somewhat mortifying, but in my um, stupor as a sophomore in high school, I continued to berate her for not stopping the clock at the appropriate time. But I had forgotten all about that as I was walking into school on Monday morning. And all I remembered was how well I thought I had played. So our head coach calls me aside. He says, come here, Luke. And I'm thinking, yes, I'm about to get encouraged and maybe even get moved up to varsity. And what he says to me, however, was this. What's this I hear about you um, talking to my wife rudely in the game Friday night? And I was thinking, okay, have I ever met his wife? I don't think this is ever. And he said, yeah, she was, she was keeping the clock. And she told me after the game that she had some young punk sophomore point guard yell at her for not keeping the clock up to his um, abilities the way he wanted her to. And that's when it dawned on me. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> and at that moment, I have to say, the only word, well, I couldn't say anything. I was, I was just stunned. It was a complete reversal of expectations. I was thinking this is going to be a great meeting, and it turned out to be a really, really bad meeting and a really, really bad practice because I didn't practice. I ran lines for like three hours during the practice. But at that moment, I was, I was astonished. I, I couldn't even say anything. I was just kind of sitting there stunned. Well, that story obviously doesn't compare to um, the depth and the importance of what Paul's getting at in this letter to the, to the Galatians. But this letter is a letter of astonishment. Paul is astonished at what he sees as an abandonment of the gospel by the Galatians, and he's also continually astonished by the beauty of the true gospel. Let me tell you a little bit about how Paul came to know these folks. In about 47 AD, um, when Paul was a young missionary on his first missionary journey, he went through a region, a provincial region that's now a part of southern Turkey, and that was then called Galatia, and he planted a number of churches in towns like Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium and Lystra, and he spent a number of years there uh, building these young church plants uh, with mainly Gentile people, mainly Greek-speaking people, and not very many Jewish people who, who were familiar with the Old Testament law. And after a couple of years, he went back home to Antioch and to Jerusalem, 
And a few years later, probably around 51 or 52 AD, Paul got word, we're not sure how he got word, either he got it through letter or through personal uh, meeting with someone who had been in one of the Galatian churches, that these Galatians had begun to embrace what Paul considered to be a false gospel, a gospel that was different from the gospel he had proclaimed to them when he was there. And so Paul was stunned, he was astonished, he was aghast, he was sad, and he was probably even a little mad, as Galatians very clearly shows him to be. And so he very quickly wrote a letter as a quick and terse and direct response to these churches and to these brothers and sisters that he had come to know and that had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through his church planning ministry, not but a few years beforehand. And that letter is what we know now as the letter to the Galatians. Um, and really, the main idea in the book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians, uh, is that the freedom, the freedom of being made right with God and brought into God's family comes only through faith in the work of Jesus. It comes through faith in Christ alone. And tonight, as we look at the first part of the letter and begin this study, I want to just introduce us to some of the main themes that Paul is going to pick up more fully on later in his letter. But for tonight... Here's the main idea for you. Any false gospel must be rejected. Any false gospel must be rejected. That is exactly the point Paul is trying to make here at the very outset of Galatians chapter 1. And so if you look in the text with me, you'll see something really um, interesting, especially if you compare it with, say, Phil's sermon text this morning from the very beginning of Romans. You know, in almost every one of Paul, well, not almost, in every one of Paul's letters, um, he starts the letter with an introductory greeting like he does right here in Galatians. He gives his name. He gives his office, apostle. He says, grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, something like that, to the churches of Galatia, Philippi, Ephesus, Rome, etc. In every single letter, we see that as an introduction. And in every single letter, except Galatians, we see something similar to what Phil preached on this morning. Right after Paul has given the introduction, he will say something like, I thank God always, and I constantly remember you in my prayers. We don't see that at all here. Instead, we see right after the introduction in verse 6, as I mentioned, this, this all-important verb that sets the tone for the rest of the letter. I am astonished. We see clearly that at the very beginning, Paul goes into this really strong denunciation of this message that the Galatians has received after he's left them. He, he is kind of angry, it seems. He, he uses some pretty sharp language. He's very terse. He's very spirited, to say the least. It's very different from any of the other letters he wrote, so much so that he, he skips the, I thank God and I remember you in my prayers. No, he goes right to the point. So for those of you who have a hard time getting to the point in a difficult conversation, you could just use Galatians 1, 6 through 10 for some help. I'm astonished that you're so quickly abandoning him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So a fair question to ask for us tonight then is, why is Paul so astonished? Why is he so angry? Why is he so terse and short? Why is he so upset so early in the letter? Usually it takes him a while to get worked up. But here he's immediately on the verge of, it seems like, some sort of catatonic fit. He's upset. 
He's mad. He's worried. And I think there's really three reasons why we see Paul so upset. Three reasons why we must always reject false gospels. And so what I want to do with you tonight is look at those three reasons that we find here in this text really quickly. And let me just give them to you here at the outset. The three reasons Paul's astonished, or the three reasons why every false gospel must be rejected are this. Because they bear no authority, because they destroy community, and thirdly, because they bring no hope. So we must reject every false gospel because they bear no authority, they destroy community, and they bring no hope. So first then, let's dive in and look at what Paul says. Very, the very first thing is that a false gospel must re- be rejected because it bears no authority. So just look at what he says there in chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. There is no other gospel. Even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one I preached to you, to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. If anyone is preaching a gospel contrary to the one you received from me, let him be accursed. Now, as you read that in our culture today, and perhaps as people who are new to the Bible, as some of you may be, read this, you might sort of initially get annoyed, frustrated, or bothered by Paul's tone here. Um, In fact, I've talked to people who have read Galatians and thought, you know, that is just colossally arrogant of Paul. It's an amazingly conceited thing for him to say, the message that I gave you was right and everyone else's message was wrong. And in fact, if you believe their message over my message, then to hell with you. Because that's literally what he's saying here. So how are we supposed to sort of handle this um, seeming exclusive language that Paul's using here? And is he being arrogant? Is he being conceited? Well, those people who kind of might be initially put off, if you're new to the Bible, especially by this sort of language, they're, they're right in reading exclusivity in Paul's language there. He is being exclusive. There's no way to avoid that, and we shouldn't try to avoid that. He is saying, my message is right, and your message is wrong. What I deliver to you is true, and what these others have delivered to you is false. So it is an exclusive message. But to charge Paul, however, with conceit and and arrogance, I don't think is, is quite fair. And the reason I don't think it's fair is because exclusivity is something that's unavoidable. Um, It's unavoidable for Paul, and it's unavoidable for for all of us as well. And in fact, I believe that um, probably the things that we feel most strongly about in life are the things about which we are most exclusive. Let me just give you one example. To take a simple example, virtually everyone is exclusivist in the truth assertion that murder is wrong. And you know who's going to be particularly exclusivistic about that truth assertion? The person that gets murdered. (laughs) But perhaps also his family, his friends, those close to him. We see these sorts of stories in the news all the time, right? People dedicate their entire life to avenging the unjust murder of their son or etc. So people are very passionate in an exclusive way about things they feel strongly about. And we inherently see the the importance of such a claim as that, as murder is wrong, and we hold that to be true, and we hold the counterclaim to to be false. So so those truths that we value the most highly are those truths with which we are the most exclusivistic. And let me also say that even relativists and pluralists believe that. Even those people that say there is no exclusive truth 
are extremely passionate and extremely exclusivist, exclusive. They're extremely exclusive about that particular truth. They're passionately defensive about the idea that there's that everyone, you know, everyone's truth is equal. They're extremely exclusive and not inclusive at all about that. So all of us, to some degree or another, have an issue of exclusivity. So we shouldn't fault Paul. What I'm getting at is that we shouldn't fault Paul for doing exactly what we do all the time. Paul is being radically exclusivistic here on an issue that is radically central to who he is and to why he exists. So let's not judge him for doing exactly what we do as well. Exclusivity can be wrong, but it's not always wrong, and sometimes it's quite right. And, and furthermore, Paul here is making these sort of exclusive claims that we read because God himself has given him this message, and that really gets to the nub of this first point. Um, the exclusivity of Paul's message as he's laying it out in Galatians 1 is based, he says, it's based on God's authority. What he's getting at is that the message of these false teachers, these men who have come in after you and taught a message that's contrary to the message I taught, their message must be rejected because their message bears no authority. We're going to look more at that issue later, but suffice it to say for now that, that for Paul in Galatians, he's deeply concerned about the issue of authority. It's an essential point that he's making in this letter. And here he's claiming that the teaching of these men is a teaching that is based on the authority of men and the authority of men only, whereas his teaching comes directly from God. Look at what he says in, in verse 1, for example, right at the very beginning. He says, Paul, an apostle, and then he throws this little snippet in. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. So immediately in the very first verse, he's making sort of an, an extended point about his own apostleship. He's saying that Jesus Christ, God, directly gave me my message, and therefore my message bears inherent divine authority. That's not true with the message of these false teachers who have come in after me. He says similar things there in verses 8 and 9 when he says, Basically, if an angel from heaven comes and preaches to you a message different from the one you received to me, let him be accursed. He's alluding again there to the idea that, that the messenger doesn't matter nearly as much as the message. Even if an angel, he says, should come and preach another gospel, one not given by God, one that's not approved by God, then it is of necessity false. Martin Luther with... Um, by the way, Martin Luther is great to read on Galatians because it's just classic, sort of, it fits perfectly with Luther's personality. But he said this, he said, if Peter and Paul preached a false gospel, then we must re reject it. But on the, on the other hand, if Judas and Pilate preached a true gospel, we must accept it. So what he's getting at there is that the reason that Paul preached what he preached to the Galatians is because it was God's message, not his message. It was delivered to him through Jesus Christ himself on the road to Damascus. It's not man's news. It's God's news, Paul is saying. It's not man who's commissioned him. It's God who's commissioned him. So Paul is, is urging the Galatians to remember that, that to reject his message is in a very real way to reject God himself. He's saying to them, this is not a, a trifling matter. This is not a game. This is not a joke. So we must reject false gospels, Paul says, because those false gospels bear no authority. Secondly, we must reject false gospels, Paul says, any false gospel, any message contrary to the message you receive from me, because false gospels destroy community. Now, that's not extremely evident 
in this portion of Galatians. It's going to become much more important later on down the line. But for now, just look with me at verse 7 there. He says, they're turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some, that is these false teachers, these Judaizers, who trouble you. Now, as I mentioned, this was largely a church filled with Gentiles that had probably a few Jewish people scattered here and there. And these false teachers had come in and said that Gentiles have to become Jews to be okay with God. In order to, to really be okay, you have to not only believe in Jesus, but you have to also basically become Jewish. You particularly have to keep certain boundary markers, what Paul calls the works of the law, circumcision, certain dietary restrictions, um, holding the certain Jewish festivals. It's, it's okay to believe in Jesus. We're glad you've believed in Jesus, but that, that's, that's essential. It's essential to believe in Jesus. But these people also said, but believing in Jesus is not sufficient. It is not enough. You also have to do these other things. And so these Jewish men and these Gentile people in this church are being, in a sense, turned against one another because of the false teaching of these Judaizers that, has come in, that have come in. And let me just say for now that, that the gospel is, the true gospel is, is highly concerned and highly involved with, with community building. And listen, Galatians is certainly going to deal with the question of how an individual can become right with God. But it also, I think, touches fundamentally on the question of how, how can God's people live together in harmony and in mutual love despite their cultural differences and their racial differences and their variegated traditions, etc. So Paul's saying, you must reject this false gospel because it bears no authority. You must reject this false gospel because it destroys community. Let me just pause and make a point here by way of application. I want us to remember and to think about this idea that false teaching always destroys community. Especially when it's the sort of false teaching that we come across in Galatia. The sort of teaching where someone says that you have to have Jesus plus something else. There has to be some sort of addendum to the gospel. Let me give you a couple of examples. A couple of historical examples. One present day example. I just finished reading a book about Charles Hodge, who was a great 19th century Princeton seminary theologian, one of the great sort of orthodox American theologians. And he lived during the Civil War. And this biography talked a good bit about um, very, very brilliant, godly Southern preachers and theologians, men like James Henley Thornwell and Robert Dabney, who, because of their frankly horrible views on slavery, on the integrity of the humanity of black people, um, on their views of the image of God and African Americans, because of all their, the messiness, all their huge blind spot there, uh, it led to amazing fractures within the church. The Presbyterian church split, the Baptist church split, all the major churches split between north and south. That's just one example of how false teaching created a massive breach in community. Another example, modern day example, that I don't know if you've experienced, but I've experienced before, is what we find in some church, and I'm not here to rip everything about different church traditions, but I had an experience in college that was just uh, very illuminating for me. I went to a church for a little while that was uh, quite a charismatic church where they practiced some of the more miraculous gifts, you might say, and there was sort of a tone and a culture in this church where if you spoke in tongues or uh, had the gift of prophecy or interpretation, and this is completely 
By the way, I'm not at all saying whether or not these gifts are still valid. I'm not making that point now or arguing against that now. I'm simply saying this. In some cases, when, when that sort of teaching is, is held at a pedestal that it shouldn't be held at, you get sort of an A-team and B-team mentality in the church. You get the people that sort of have the better gifts, and then you get the people that don't. And it creates all sorts of animosity and all sorts of bitterness and all sorts of awkwardness and all sorts of breaches in community. So elevating certain gifts above other gifts can create breaches in community. Racism, obviously, can create breaches in community. All sorts of false teaching, any false teaching, any false gospel, destroys community. And so Paul says you must reject it. He says you must reject the false gospels because they bear no authority. They're not given from God. They're just made up by men. You must reject them because they destroy community. And then thirdly, and most importantly, Paul tells us in Galatians 1, that you must reject every false gospel because false gospels bring no hope. Look at what he says in, in verse 7 again. I'm astonished, excuse me, verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, verse 7. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen, Paul says it is about as clearly there as it can be said. There is no other gospel. You know, that word gospel, as probably most of you know itself, means good news. <clears throat> and he lays out in verse 4 what the good news is. It's first news. It's something that's happened in history. Jesus Christ has been made a man, and he has, on the cross, verse 4, given himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. It's, it's news. It's about something that's happened. And it's also good news for a number of reasons. One is, according to verse 4, this is all God's plan. It's according to the will of God, our, of our God and Father. It's, it's an example of God pursuing us with His grace. So that's good. And it's also good because, as the key word there indicates, we are delivered. Delivered both from our sins and from this present evil age through the work of Christ. So it's news about something that's happened and it's good because it's about what God has done in Jesus and not about what we do. Now, any other gospel, any other message, anything that adds to that work becomes not any longer news about what God has done, but advice about what we must do. And it becomes not good, but really, really, really bad. Listen, anything that says Jesus plus equals disaster for the Christian life. There's a recent book that's come out by Tullian Chavidian, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church now. And the title of the book is Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. That's, that is the gospel. And that's exactly what the Galatians had been led to believe was not the case. They were being taught that you have to do extra things along with believing in Jesus in order to be accepted by God. And when that Judaizing message that's not news about what God has done is believed, it's devastatingly bad. Because to abandon the true gospel, the good news is to abandon the hope of freedom. If, if the gospel isn't free, it isn't good news. If it's entirely, if it's not entirely of God, and if it's not completely independent of our own merit, it isn't good news. The reason it's not good news is because we can't ever merit it. So to say, as the Judaizers did, that you must add X, that you must add anything to Jesus, that is to condemn people. 
It's not giving people a good message. It's giving people an unbelievably horrible message. It's not freeing people to hope. It's giving people a message that's going to damn them. And that's why Paul says, let the person who says such a thing be accursed and let the message itself be accursed. As Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, any man who tells you, save yourself, is your greatest enemy. Any gospel involving our effort is not gospel. That's what Paul's getting at. That's what he wants to impress upon the Galatians' minds. That's what we're going to see again and again as we study this letter. So let me just ask you now as we wrap up, do you believe that? Do you now believe that there is absolutely nothing that you have to do apart from believing in Jesus Christ to be accepted by God? You know, I'm pretty certain that most of you would say, yes, I believe that. But the way we live our lives very, very often indicates that we have a Jesus plus something mentality. And friends, my prayer as we look through this letter together for my own life and for your lives as well is that we would abandon any hope in anything else in order to please God and simply cling to Jesus. You know, in a sense, you know that you're really growing as a Christian you know that you really are sort of moving forward in the Christian life, not when you can answer everyone's questions, not when you've got it all figured out, but when you really, really sort of daily and tangibly feel that Jesus is going to have to do it if I'm going to be okay with God. <laughs> that I'm not going to be able to take care of this on my own. It's when, it's when Jesus is no longer an addendum to your busy life, but your only hope in life and in death, that you really are beginning to grasp hold of what Christianity is. And that's when you really begin to experience true Christian freedom and when you really begin to experience true Christian hope. Yesterday, I took the older two kids to the zoo and we always have a good time at the zoo, but there was a, a young woman there with three boys that I just couldn't, they were kind of walking near us the whole time and I, I couldn't stop observing them partly because of, and I might be about to offend some of you. If, if I am, then you can come and apologize to me later. But um, she was walking with her three boys, like a six-year-old, four-year-old, two-year-old, something like that. And they had backpacks on. You've probably seen these backpacks. And each backpack had a leash. And she had each of these children sort of, she was holding them like they were three dogs, you know, walking them around on a leash. And these boys, you know, they were rambunctious boys, young kids. And trying to have fun at the zoo, but anytime they tried to get away, you know, the leash would kind of snap them back, and it was really, it was probably quite painful for them, but it was painful to watch. These kids are trying to go see the elephants, they're trying to sit on the bench, and their mom just got them on this leash and yelling at them and screaming at them, and I, you know, part of me was thinking, man, that leash, I could use that leash, but the better part of me was thinking, you know, that's, that's just probably not the best way to, um, to encourage your kids and to help your kids. But as I was thinking about that, it just kept coming back to me that so often we feel like in the Christian life, we are, we're, on a, we're on a leash. We're on a leash because we have to do this or be that or become this in order to really be okay with God and, and with others. And as long as we're feeling that way, we're, we're never going to feel, to feel free, free to live a life of Christian freedom, free to live a life of Christian hope. So what we must do as we study this letter together is, is cut the leashes in our lives that are constraining us from fully clinging to Jesus Christ himself 
and of Jesus Christ alone as he's freely offered to you in the gospel. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together as we begin studying this new letter for us tonight, the letter of Galatians. And we do ask, oh God, that, that you would be at work. Oh, Father, we are all, especially me, we are unable to fully explain the wonders of what you have revealed to us here. We are unable to grasp with our minds and our hearts the beauty of what's contained in the pages of this letter. And so, Father, will you please help us by your spirit to do that, to believe what Paul is proclaiming so powerfully here under the inspiration of the spirit and to apply it to our own hearts. We need your help with that, O oh God, and we need your grace. And so we pray that you would provide that for us as we enter into this exploration of this letter. And Father, we pray that we would hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him only. We pray that we would reject any gospel that tells us that we must have Jesus plus something else. We pray that we would cling to him and nothing else so that our community will be built up, so that the authority upon which our faith rests would be solid, and so that our hope will spring forth eternally. And we ask these things in your good name. Amen.